So one thing I love about uh, the wisdom literature, specifically the wisdom literature of the Bible, is that it's a uh, dialogue. Like in uh, philosophy, you might have heard the phrase like dialectical, if you took philosophy 101 whenever you were in college. And dialectical is just a fun way of saying like, hey, we're having a conversation. In that conversation, we're trying to reach the truth. And the wisdom literature of the Bible is a lot like that. Like you have the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs basically portrays the world as ordered. Like if you do this, then this will happen. And then you have the book of Ecclesiastes, which tries to like kind of undermine that and problematize that, saying like, hey, the wise and the good suffer, and then the evil are the ones that thrive. And then you get Job coming in, and Job is trying to like synthesize those two positions and trying to figure out where God fits in all of that. It's a dialogue between those three books. But there's even smaller dialogues in the wisdom literature, like, for instance, uh, in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, there's a dialogue. Like, Proverbs 26, 4, um, Matt referenced this in his discussion on the fool. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But if you're following along in your Bibles and you look at the verse immediately afterwards, you see, not answer not a fool according to his folly, but answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you read that and you're like, well, wait, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to answer a fool or am I supposed to answer not a fool? And the answer, of course, is yes, you're supposed to do both. It just depends on the situation. You're supposed to actually use wisdom and to discern which proverb you're supposed to be following in the moment. There's a point, there's a counterpoint, and you're supposed to synthesize it in your head. So this actually has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, rest. I was just using it as a prologue to say, I'm providing the counterpoint to what Matt discussed last week. Matt was discussing work and he was focusing on how wisdom commands us to work. And I'm going to play the Ecclesiastes to his Proverbs and say, hey, you know, wisdom also says that we need to rest. So with all that out of the way, I want to lead off by saying this. I don't know if you guys knew this, but we really kind of live in a culture of productivity. America is ruled and dominated by a culture of productivity. And by that statement, I mean that in our society, we strive to be productive. We strive to be busy. In fact, studies have shown that Americans perceive those who portray themselves as busy as being uh, wealthier and as being of a higher status. They don't know anything about someone. They just see how busy they are. The more busy someone is, the more likely they're going to say, oh, that's a rich person. That's a famous person. And of course, the other side of it is that those who are posting on social media about their leisurely lives and a much more relaxed lifestyle, people are more likely to think that they're actually less high status and that they are less wealthy. Of course, for most of human history, the opposite was true. Um, For most of human history, leisure or the lack of work was seen as what made someone wealthy. Only the wealthy could stop working, so those who wanted to appear to be of a higher status would conspicuously spend their time on leisure activities. They might go swimming at the beach or they might play polo or whatever other things wealthy people do. I don't know. Um, Status was shown by the ability to rest, not by the ability to work. Of course, that's not how it is now, though. Nowadays, it's important to look like you're in demand. If everyone wants a chunk of your time, then you must be a hot commodity. You must be TikTok famous or something. Um, But this culture of productivity, this culture of business has led to a strange turn of events in America. That strange turn of events is that rest has become with Rest has become affiliated with laziness 
and poverty, while work has become associated with the rich and the powerful. And it's not like we don't have good examples of people who are rich and powerful, but also are basically workaholics. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. He was known to work 80 hours a week whenever he worked at Amazon. Elon Musk, I think Matt mentioned this in the past, he would sleep on the floors of his Tesla factories so that he could clock in 120 hours a week at his peak. Fortunately, he toned it down to what he called a more sustainable 80 hours a week. Again, that's his word, not mine. And Mark Cuban, you know, he's got a net worth of $4 billion. He's pretty rich, too. He once, he once went without a vacation for seven years. And when someone asked him about his work ethic and whatever he was defending his work ethic, he said to his followers that you need to work like there is someone working 24 hours to take it all away from you. You need to work like there is someone working 24 hours to take it all away from you. Of course, when I think about that thought, my reaction is, well, if someone's working 24 hours to take all my wealth away from me, doesn't that mean I have to work 24 hours in order to like, you know, counteract that? Is that basically what he's saying? Is you need to work 24 hours all the time? Now, we can agree, you know, as Matt told us, that work is a good thing. And I, we can agree with that because it's a biblical thing to say that work is a good thing. Many of the Proverbs encourage us to pursue work, such as Proverbs 14, 23, which says, in all toil, there is profit. Plus, scripture tells us that as Christians, all of our work is a service to God. Therefore, as Colossians 3, 23 through 24 tells us, we ought to work heartily. We ought to work hard. And if we choose not to work, then there's a penalty for us too. The church in Thessalonica, the early church in Thessalonica, for instance, um, had such a laziness issue because they thought the end times had already come that Paul had to tell them, those who aren't willing to work among you shouldn't eat with you. Those who aren't willing to work among you, you should not eat with. Paul was literally shunning the laziness out of people. So yes, work is good. However, I don't think God is probably too fond of our culture of busyness. And I know he wouldn't consider Elon Musk's 120 hours a week work ethic a good work ethic. So let's consider, um, my notes. let's consider for a moment the seven-day creation narrative in Genesis. You guys all know the story, probably, unless you're, this is your first time with the Bible, in which case, welcome. Um, but, you know, in the seven-day creation narrative, God makes light. He separates the waters below from the waters above. He makes dry land, trees, uh, fish, animals, and people. And then what does he do? He rests. God declares the seventh day as holy, and he devotes it to rest. And he himself rests on that seventh day, and it becomes known as the Sabbath day. This act of rest was so important to God that he had it codified in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, tell us that God's chosen people, the ancient Israelites, were supposed to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. On that day, no one, not men, not woman, not children or slave, not immigrants, not livestock. No one was supposed to work. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. But to jump back to Genesis for a moment, this super important thing, this rest, raises a very sophisticated theological question. And that question is, 
what? Why? Like, why? Seriously, like, why is God resting? Like, God, like, just think about it. God has no reason to rest. It's not like he got exhausted and he had to, like, you know, rejuvenate his creative energies. It's not like he blew his spirit into Adam's lungs and was like, oh, I'm winded, man. I just need to take a day for myself. I mean, he's not tired. He's God. He's all-powerful. Why did a being that had no reason to rest still commit time to rest? Well, to be honest, I don't think I can, ste- I don't think I can speak for why God decides to do anything, let alone rest on the seventh day. He's God after all, so his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But it's clear from scriptures that one of the reasons he chose to rest was to serve as an example. We're supposed to emulate God. We're supposed to mirror him and to do what he does. As Matthew 5, 48 tells us, we're supposed to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. So if he, in his perfection, chose to rest when he had no need to, then we, whose bodies actually require that we rest, ought to choose the same. We ought to choose rest just as our Father in heaven chose rest. Now, like I said, I don't think I can explain why God chose to rest, rest unless uh, his only reason for resting was to serve as an example, in which case I think I nailed that one on the head. But I can tell you why God would want us to rest. So let's look at that now. Let's look at why God would want us to rest. And I think the first reason that God would want us to rest is that rest bestows a certain dignity on the one resting. Rest bestows dignity on the one resting. I know that requires some unpacking. So let's think about this. In the ancient Near East, back whenever, you know, the Bronze Age, whenever God was revealing his word to the Israelites when he commanded the Sabbath to them, there was no five-day work week. In fact, in my research for this, I learned that happened in like the late 1920s. I think it was 1928. Henry Ford declared that there was going to be a five-day work week for his employees. And that's where that came from. For most of human history, there was no five-day work week, 40-hour cap. Whenever you were in the ancient Near East, you basically were a subsistence farmer, which meant that you worked and you worked and you worked and you tilled the field, you plowed the land, you harvested your grain, and then you did that every day for your whole life until you wasted away and died and returned to the dust. That was your life. The only folks who were given the dignity of rest were the elites, such as like, you know, courtiers and the god kings of like Mesopotamia. But by giving everyone in Israel a time to rest, God was giving what is normally reserved for kings to everyone. He was telling people that they were worth more than the value of their labor. He was saying that they were worth more than the value of their labor. And he was doing that by letting them exist without that labor for a little while. So I I think I might make more sense with an example. So let's say that, um, okay, let's say you have a job. I think most of you have a job, but let's say you have a job and let's say that uh, your job is you're working for the president and you're working as the president's speechwriter. Like your work is very important if you're doing that. If you're the speechwriter for the president, you are literally writing words that are going to change the course of history. Your work is valuable, supremely valuable, and no one can deny that. 
Now, let's say that you're about to write an announcement for the president. Let's say he has this whole education plan he's about to roll out. And this is like almost the end of his first four-year term. So he's having this education plan be like the linchpin of his entire re-election. Again, very important words. And then let's say on the cusp of the announcement, before you've even finished the uh, announcement, before you've even finished the speech, let's say the president comes to you and says, hey, take a week off. You might be like, I'm sorry, what, Mr. President, what are you doing? I haven't even earned this break yet. I haven't even finished the speech yet. And you're telling me to take a week off? Like, what are you doing? But the president simply replies, you are more important than the work that you produce. You are more important than the work that you produce. So go spend time with your family. Enjoy yourself. That is what God is doing by commanding us to rest. The work that we do is important. But no matter how important that work is, he's saying we're more important than that. Rest bestows a dignity on the one who's resting. And that's one reason that God wants us to rest. Another reason that we rest is to show that our faith is in God. That seems pretty obvious. Another reason that we rest is to show that our faith is in God, to show that we trust him. And this is an important reason because let's be honest, it's far easier to trust these two things, trust our two hands, than to trust someone else. <laughs> so I got another example for you guys. I don't know if you know this about me. This is a very little known fact. has never once come up in the forge. Um, Morgan and I are getting married. Um, I know, just, uh, no one I think knew that. Um, so, yes, thank you for the applause, Holly. <laughs> yeah, I know. They, <laughs> they needed to applaud because they just can't believe that you... Exactly. Anyways, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan and I are getting... She's too. Yeah, she's settling. Um, anyways, um, Morgan and I are getting married, and, uh, you know, being engaged, we, you know, often spend time at each other's place where like I'll be at Morgan's apartment and we'll uh, have dinner together and uh, she'll make dinner for me and she'll have a very reasonable request for me which is hey babe you should uh do the dishes for me like since I made the food for you, you should do the dishes for me and that's perfectly reasonable I and I promise her yes I'll do that it happens on more than one occasion I promise yes babe I'll make you the, I'll, I'll make the dishes no you made the food I'll clean the dishes so <laughs> I do also make the dishes because I'm a very messy eater. Um, so, yeah, so we'll do that. And uh, this funny thing will happen sometimes. I promise, yes, I'm going to do the dishes. And then I'll go off and do something else for a few minutes. Like, you know, probably something else Morgan has asked me to do. And then, uh, <laughs> then I'll return to the kitchen and to my horror... Morgan is already doing the dishes. So she asked me to do the dishes. Then she comes in and she's already doing the dishes. In fact, she's already halfway done with them. And of course, what that communicates to me is that she doesn't trust me enough to do the thing that she asked me to do. She's trusting in her own two hands over the promise that I made to her to do the dishes. Now, now, to be fair to Morgan, I'm not just roasting her here. To be fair to her, her distrust is well justified because I have forgotten to do the dishes on more than one occasion. So um, regardless of how justified or unjustified her lack of trust is, I mean, that's what it's communicating, is that she has a lack of trust whenever she does the work. If she was resting, it would communicate that she was trusting me to do the work. 
The point is what the action is communicating, not, again, how justified it is. And this is a biblical reason for resting. And we can see it in the uh, Israelites' time in the wilderness. After God had given, uh, sorry, after God had uh, given the Israelites the Sabbath, after he delivered them out of Egypt, and uh, yeah, after he had done that and he was in the wilderness, he needed to provide food for them. And he provided this food to them called manna, which is comedically the Hebrew word for what is it? So he provides this food called what is it? Um, sounds very appetizing. And manna, aside from all its many interesting qualities, apparently it was like the size of a coriander seed and it was white and it tasted like honey whenever you baked it into a little wafer. Aside from all of those things, it had another strange quality. And that strange quality was that manna spoiled overnight. Manna lasted a day and then it spoiled overnight. So the Israelites couldn't hoard their resources and just bank on like storing this and, you know, bank on that instead of God. But... Despite this fact that manna, what is it, spoiled overnight, God commanded the Israelites before the Sabbath to gather two days worth of manna. And they were supposed to trust God that that manna would last them throughout the whole day, though again, it had an awful track record of keeping. So on Sabbath, the Israelites literally had to trust that God would perform a miracle to sustain their food for an entire day. Of course, they didn't have to. They didn't have to trust him. They could have gone and tried to find their own food in the wilderness. They could have done work on the Sabbath. But by resting, they trusted in God's faithfulness. They trusted that he was going to perform a miracle and preserve this food, which honestly was not going to be preserved. Similarly, we are called to trust God's provision. We are called to trust God's abundance over our own wealth and resources. That's why Proverbs 23, 4 tells us to not toil to acquire wealth. Proverbs 23, 4, do not toil to acquire wealth. You see, money gives us this sense of control in our lives. It's easy to believe that we've got things under control whenever we can just throw money at an issue. Not to use the wedding as an example again, but there's many times where I'm like, ah, babe, I don't know if we're going to get all this done for the wedding. And I'm like, oh, but it's okay. We have some money that we can spend on it. And that resolves the issue. It it gives you a false sense of security whenever you have money in your life. And that makes money an easy idol. You might not worship it, but it gives you a sense of control. And therefore you work for it. And work is the easiest way to acquire more money. I'm sorry for you guys that are holding out for the lottery. But as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, we should not try to serve the idol of money. As he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. If we do try to serve two masters, if we do try to serve money, then we begin to take our trust away from God. Instead, Jesus says we should meditate on the birds of the air. We should meditate on the lilies of the field. And just as God provides for those things, just as he provides food for the birds and clothing for the lilies, so too will he provide enough for us. We just need to put our trust in him instead of our wealth. We need to trust that he'll preserve the manna. We need to trust that he'll do the dishes. And part of displaying that trust is that we rest. 
Denying ourselves money by engaging in rest demonstrates our primary devotion to our heavenly Father. So I think we're going to leave it there for this evening. I hope I've convinced you all that as Christians, rest ought to be a spiritual discipline. Honestly, I didn't get to all the fun stuff the Bible has to say about rest. If you read Hebrews 4, there's this whole theological thing about how there's a final rest, but we also have like an enduring rest right now, and we should live that final rest now. It's amazing. You should read Hebrews 4. Just read all of Hebrews. I love the book of Hebrews, but I didn't even get to that. But yet, there's so much the Bible has to say about rest. And despite all that, if you take one thing away from this lesson, if I could boil it down to one application point, it's this. You cannot have a good work ethic without a strong rest ethic. You cannot have a good work ethic if you do not have a strong rest ethic. So, I think we should all strive to develop that rest ethic in our lives. We should ask the Holy Spirit to show us ways where we can have a nice disciplined rest. If you tend towards being a workaholic, be diligent in enjoying some time alone. Maybe even some time alone with God in prayer and in worship. Enjoy the dignity that God has offered you. And choose his abundance over the sweat of your brow. That's all I've got to say for this evening. But we're going to break into our small groups, as we typically do. We're going to try to get into small groups of three or four. And uh, I have... One question for you, but it's one question that takes different forms. So if you feel like that you have a strong rest um, ethic in your life, then that's fine. That's great. Uh, You should share that wisdom that you've garnered from that with your fellow believers. We should build each other up through wisdom and through dialogue. So the question for you will be, what is one way you have incorporated rest into your life? What is one way that you've incorporated rest into your life? Now, for many of us, myself included, uh, rest might seem fleeting. And if that is you, and you don't feel like you've incorporated rest in your life, then based off this conversation, try to answer the question, what is one way you could incorporate rest into your life? So for those that would like to share wisdom, it's one way you have incorporated rest. And for those that are seeking wisdom, it's one way that you could incorporate rest. And of course, as always, You can also have your time to lift up your praises and your prayer requests and pray together. So I'm going to dismiss you guys. And uh, yeah, have fun talking about rest. Beautiful.